We are in week two of our series, The Flip Side of Justice. And the flip side of justice, the other side of that same coin, do you remember what that is? Anybody? Joy. Joy is the flip side of God's justice. And we began with the image of the haves and have-nots. And so we, we think of us that are the haves and very high up in what we have, and those that have nots and they're very low. And God's idea of justice is that there is no gap between the haves and the have-nots, yet that's our reality. We live in a reality where there are gaps. And the true joy comes when we give up some of what we have, whether it be status or power, influence, finances, uh, the, the extra time that we have, and, and when it is received by those who have not, and they are brought up, and we meet in the middle till we are equal. And while that can be very painful for us who, who give things up, it is a celebration for those who receive. And we do this because we trust that God's way of justice for all is the true and right way of the world it is where the world is headed, and it is in that way that we find joy. Joy is the flip side of God's justice. Now, we're walking through the series using Wesley's three general rules. Last week, we focused on do no harm. Today, we're going to learn about do good. And the next week, stay in love with God. Or the other way to say it is attend to all the ordinances of God. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to work through our three passages. I'm going to touch briefly on Isaiah. I'm going to touch briefly on the Luke passage. And then we're going to focus in on the Hebrews passage using a metaphor um, that will help us understand what the author is communicating and how we can then bring it into our context and our lives uh, right alongside Wesley's rule two of do good. So are you ready? Here we go. Isaiah Isaiah, we read today from chapter 5, and it's, it's a poem or a song about a vineyard. And the vineyard image is used as a parable to help Israel understand their situation, to understand themselves, and to understand God's relationship to them. And parables work great because we can understand the logic in an image that we are not attached to. So the image of the vineyard is that it, it received everything it needed from God, to produce good fruit, good grapes. But instead, the vineyard chose wildness and chaos and produced wild or rotten grapes. And that's what happens when we reject God's justice, when we don't follow the way of God. We find ourselves more egotistical and egocentric. And the difference being egotistical is when we say life is all about me, that it's all about me and what I want. And egocentrism is when we say, I only see the world through my perspective, and I do not see it, I will not see it from others' perspectives. It's interesting that the Bible is constantly asking us to see things through the eyes of the have-nots, the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, because there's something about their perspective that brings a truth that we cannot see when we are part of the haves. And so, in the parable... The only thing that can be done to the vineyard as it has destroyed itself by growing wild and chaotically is to remove everything that God put in place to help it and just to let it overgrow, let it be destroyed, let it come to its own ruin, and then God can start again. And it's all about that message of hope that underlies the point 
There is not just punishment for punishment's sake. There is punishment for the purpose of life and hope beyond. And so Isaiah lifts that up to Israel in a moment where the the introduction to the entire 60-some chapters of the book is introduced to this pronouncement of judgment of, you can't judge God. God gave you everything you need. We can only judge ourselves in the way that we've chosen this alternative path. And so in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says that he is, there'll be a fire brought to the earth and how he wish it were kindled. And this fire doesn't bring peace, but division. And what he's talking about is a purifying fire that's going to come to the earth that we call the Holy Spirit. This divine fire burns within us and burns within our world to purify by burning away what doesn't belong to leave what does belong. Again, punishment, but with a purpose. This punishment is is not punishment for punishment's sake. It's correction. It is bringing us through the fire and into a better life, a better way into the way of justice. And so we call this sanctification, that we are being sanctified or made holy. And it hurts, church. It hurts. It hurts when parts of our lives that we think are good or that we love are burned away. But we engage this fire with open hearts and open minds because we trust that we are going to be renewed and reborn through a lifetime of working with the Spirit. But Jesus says, when you work with the Spirit, when you begin to step into the way of order and out of the way of chaos, there's going to be opposition and division. People are going to reject what you're doing because the world loves chaos, loves egocentrism and being egotistical. And when we start operating outside of that, it's challenging. And it brings a mirror to everyone else that realizes that you're living a different way. You're not buying into the way that that we so often are tempted to buy into. And so there's opposition and division, especially in Jesus' day and first century. And we even see that in the time of Isaiah, in ninth century BCE, that there is this opposition and division happening in this destruction. You know, we think that our world today is, is somehow worse off, right? I mean, we, we talk like that. We hear people talk like that. Like, what happened, right? Things used to be great, right? Everyone's looking back and thinking that we can get back to some sort of greatness. But really, things have never been better. We, we may not understand that, but when we see the wide world and the scope of where things have been, things have never been better. Now, we are a long way from where we want to be, which is to see God's justice for all. But we know that our time is no different in so many ways, to 1st century or to 9th century B.C. So what do we do? What do we do in this time? Now, we understand that there are consequences of both not doing good, and we know there are consequences of doing good. Either way, whatever we choose, there's a consequence. Whether we choose to act and be kind or whether we choose not to act or not be kind. I think sometimes we just get caught up And the idea that in the world of chaos, if we just put our heads down, put our heads in the sand, we just focus on ourselves, hear that egocentric, egotistical thinking, that we can just stay out of it. We can just not cause friction, stay out of the the whole deal, and just try to survive as if that is a holy way. But according to the passage in Hebrews, this is not the way we are to choose. According to John Wesley's theology, understanding it through Scripture, It's not enough to just not do harm. We have to actively 
do good. And that comes with our faith. And so to talk about faith in this light, I want to compare it to cross-country running. And stay with me for a minute. How many of you ran cross-country? Anyone in here? One person. Okay, one person did. We had a few in first service. And, and uh, I tell you, I admire you all that ran cross-country. I never developed a love for running. Um, and running definitely never developed a love for me. But I've always admired the sport. It's just unlike any other sport that I've experienced. Uh, cross-country, when you run, it is a race. But if you take off out of the gate in a full-on sprint, that's not going to go well. You have to pace yourself. You have to be patient in the way that you learn this patience and the way that you learn how to run for 10 or 12 miles of rough terrain is you train. You train a lot and you practice and you find your best success when you run with other people. So if you're out in the middle of the race and you find yourself all alone, you're actually going to be in a harder uh, circumstance than you would be if you're with others. Others push you to go on. Now, my part in cross country was as a spectator the few times that I went. And as a spectator, you do some running too, but as a spectator, you start at the beginning and when the race begins, you cheer and you clap and you yell out the names of the people you're, you're there to support, but then they disappear, maybe over the hill or around the bend. And then as spectators, you walk or you run maybe a hundred yards to another spot and then you wait at that spot and the runners will have gone a couple miles somewhere, but they'll end up back running by you where you are and you can cheer them on and and uh, keep the encouragement going but then they disappear again and then you run somewhere else and this happens a few times over the course of the 10 12 15 miles and so sometimes as a runner you hear the cheers and the support and the encouragement and sometimes most of the time you feel like you're kind of on your own and so when you're going up a steep incline when you've when you're eight miles in uh it can be hard every part of you may just want to stop and so it's grueling at times. But when you cross the finish line, I can only imagine the enormous sense of reward that comes from finishing the race. I compare this to faith because faith is like a race. It's long. It requires training and discipline. It requires patience. I know sometimes we see people or we've experienced it ourselves where we have a mountaintop experience where we begin the race of faith and we sprint out, burning on fire, full of passion and energy. And then we run out of gas. And we wonder what happened. And we begin to question our faith. And we find that our best success in faith comes when we are with a group. That we are going to go further and be encouraged by each other. And then sometimes we'll even be able to acknowledge or remember that we are cheered on by others. And sometimes we'll just be on our own, and it can feel grueling, and we may just want to quit. But we know that there's a reward if we keep running the race of faith. Now, all that to enter into the work of the author of Hebrews. And where we come to in the passage today, the author's been talking about the faith of both Abraham and Moses and lifting up their faith amidst their story, amidst their race and run. Now, the audience of Hebrews was clearly a Jewish Christian audience in the midst of some sort of persecution or difficulty, and we can relate a bit at least to the difficulty. And the author is lifting up the past heroes because they didn't have the New Testament. There was no Bible at that point. There were scrolls that we call the Old Testament, and that's what the author is bringing in to highlight. The author tells the story of Abraham and Moses, uh, and then briefly jumps into Joshua and Rahab, and then 
tells us that we don't even have time to get into the stories of Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel or the prophets. And so the author, he or she, uh, lists the elements of the stories of our heroes. And at first, they're hopeful and inspiring. See, these heroes, these heroines, they experienced miracles. They experienced the fulfillment of some promises. But then the next elements lifted up involve both trial and triumph. They engaged in battles um, but came out victorious. Or they came against hardship but emerged uh, on the other side. And then there are elements that are just torture and suffering, being cut in half, being stoned. And then the image that we're left with is of our heroes and heroines wandering in the deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. The work of faith is not glorious by the world's standards. And that's why it's hard. Now, the the church of the Hebrews, they've heard these stories before. They know these stories. And so why tell them these stories? It's because the people of the past, our heroes and heroines that we look to from our Older Testament, they have run the race which the Hebrew church was running and that we are running today. The author says of Hebrews, all of these heroines and heroes of our past, though they were commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. That's a strange sentence. So they don't experience the promise because they can't or shouldn't or won't experience the fulfillment of that promise without us as well. It seems everybody, all the people who run the race of faith will cross the finish line together. Okay, now, Understanding the idea of that, I'm going to break it down into three parts. So part one, the beginning of this thought process, saying that none of them received what was promised. Okay, they did receive some promises. So Abraham received the promise of sons and of land, and we even see the fulfillment of a large descendant group of people in Israel. But Abraham didn't receive the promise, and the promise is of an entire world, all of creation, all of humanity under the reign and rule and justice and peace of God. Abraham was promised that all nations, all peoples would be blessed through the work of Abraham, through that faith. Now we get a, a glimpse of this reality, this promise, way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we have our first creation story, everything ordered and good, and our second creation story beginning in the garden where things work together and humanity participates with creation to produce fruit and, and bring a good life. But then we know in Genesis 3 that humanity chose instead to work from an egotistical, an egocentric perspective and chose chaos over order and chose to live a life that was wild. And we know the plight of that because Genesis 3 happened, or more accurately, Genesis 3 happens. Anybody with me on that? It happens. We choose another way. So the promise has not been fulfilled when all people, all people are experiencing God's justice. So they haven't received that. So part two is that hope, that promise 
is for all people, and we need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on that, especially those who often get overlooked, which would be the orphan or the widow or the immigrant. Now, they are included, and if they are not part of that promise yet, if they are still part of the have not, then we have not received that promise. But the promise fulfillment has begun. It's not completed, but it has begun. And the Hebrews author lifts up that when Jesus came, lived and died, was resurrected, ascended, that Jesus released that fire of the Holy Spirit upon the earth within us, his body, and upon all the earth, that through the church, the family of Abraham became accessible. We all became able to be part of the family of Abraham. And suddenly all people are invited into this race in a new way. And we're empowered by that fire, that fire that brings division, that fire that brings purification, that fire that demands that we live into the way of God's justice. And so all that to say that all the stories of our biblical past, they fall short of the glory in which we now live. They were faithful But they didn't even see the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise, and we have. And we could just sit on that thought and let that stew for a while. So many of our heroes from the past, they ran faithfully, believing that the hope and the promise would come. They were waiting. They didn't know the full details of the story, but they were waiting for Jesus to do his work And they're now waiting for us to carry on and run the race in a way they never could. So Hebrews talks about their reality today. And it's kind of a strange reality, but if you follow me for a minute, there's life. And then there's life after death, which is where they all remain now apart from us. But then there's life after life after death. And that life after life after death is the resurrection. When all people are brought to life and are then ushered into this new reality, this full completion of the promise when Jesus returns. And because we have the very Holy Spirit of fire within us, the very presence of Jesus Christ, the very presence of God within our hearts and minds and souls and bodies, we can run the race now like our past heroes never could. Are you with me? Yes, we can run it like they never could. So, How are we doing with that? (laughs) How's our race going? How's your run? What's it been like for you? Where are you in the journey? That's a painful question that we face. In a world where we always have the temptation to turn wild and chaotic, egotistical and egocentric, the church, we, God's people, we cherish the very awareness to ask the question, How are we doing? As painful as it is, we celebrate that we have the awareness to even know to ask. So how are we running the race? Now I'm going to lift up another hero, not in the Bible, but certainly someone worth lifting up, and that's John Wesley. John Wesley encouraged the church to sit down together and to share some of the vulnerable, hard questions for the purpose of keeping everyone on pace in the race and on the path. We went over three of these 22 questions last week, and so I'm going to give you more today. So we did the first three, 
last week. Now, number four is this. Are you ready? And remember, we're going to pretend that we're going to answer these questions out loud in front of the group because that's how Wesley did it. And so pretend that you're going to have to answer this question out loud in front of the group, and it gives you an idea of the seriousness. So number four, am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Number five, am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Which one of the three are we? Not which one of the three are our neighbor, whoever's on the other side of the aisle in politics. Where are we? Self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Number six, am I a slave to dress Friends, work, or habit? Do dress, friends, work, or habits have control of me, or do I have control of them? Number seven, how do I invest my spare time? Number eight, when did I last speak to someone else about my faith, about my race? And number nine, the final one for today, and this is a tough one, and it's complicated. Are you ready? It's two parts. Number nine, part one. Is there anyone that I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment towards, or disregard? Is there anyone I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment towards, or disregard? And part two, if so, what am I doing about it? These are tough questions. I gave you six today, three from last week. We've covered nine of the 22. All that to say, Wesley ran the race faithfully and seriously because he knew that we need to be steady and faithful at all times and in all we do, that this race is long, requires training and discipline, requires patience and honesty. It's best run as a group, that it's both grueling and rewarding. Now his general rules, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God, he emphasizes that we must do good, that it's not enough to not do harm. He says we, we must do good by being in every kind merciful after our power. And as we have opportunity, doing good of every possible sort and as far as possible to all people. He's chasing that promise of all people experiencing the justice and peace of God. So Wesley might ask us, how is our race going? As individuals, as a church, as a community, have we stopped running? Or do we take frequent breaks when we find the race inconvenient? Or have we been feeling like we've run, been running uphill for so long that we just want to quit? Have we lifted our head lately to see who's around us, to encourage them, to be encouraged by them, or do we just go at it alone, egotistically, with egocentric way of thought? Now, the people of the past are biblical heroes. We look to them because they had a simple and clear understanding God's creation, this world, humanity, 
It's all headed somewhere toward the promise made long ago. A promise that saw the beginning of its fulfillment on the cross of Jesus Christ. A promise that is still being strived for today. And we, the church, have been chosen to bring this promise to life in our world. To run the race towards the goal. The goal of all creation under the reign of God's justice. And we run this race not because we want to achieve our victory, but because we accept that Jesus already did and continues to achieve that victory through us. And so we press on through the hardest moments because we believe the world is ever progressing towards the goal of the promise. And so we must lay aside every weight and all sin which gets in the way and trips us so easily. And not only trips us, we clear them out of the way for others, not in judgment, but in mercy. We clear the path for those who are running, and we focus on the goal at the end of our race that we will all finish together. We hear the cheers of the great cloud of witnesses who have lived and run before us, and we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who pioneered and perfected the entire path itself. He ran it, he suffered for it, he died, he rose, and he already won. And we possess that very same presence within us. So may your race, may your race be one that fuels you and fuels others. May you not only not do harm to those around you, but may you do good in the name of the promise of Jesus Christ for all humanity and creation to be in God's reign of justice and peace, and may we know that the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus and of God is within us to help us every step of the way if we only but let it. And so may you run faithfully, my friends, and may we press on toward the goal together. Amen.